Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Amy and I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, give us a like and tell all your mates. It really helps us to spread the word about debut authors and give their books the attention they so richly deserve. You can also follow us on Twitter at riffraff underscore LDN. See you there. Our first author of the night is Zelda Riando. Her first novel is Fukushima Dreams, which covers themes of family, loss, and love, and is set in the wake of the 2011 Japanese tsunami. Um, when she's not writing smash hit novels, Zelda works in digital media. Um, she's also one of the, co- uh, the founders of Brixton Book Jam. Uh, she's also a contributor to Poetry Library, so we're super lucky that she even found time to come and join us tonight. Everybody, please welcome Zelda Riando. Hello. That was quite a build-up. Hopefully I won't, I won't let you down now. Um, Fukushima Dreams. I had an idea a long time ago, maybe about ten years ago, for a novel where after a really major event, disaster situation, a whole load of people five or six, decided to just leave their lives and walk away and start new lives. Uh, So I started writing that book, and there were too many stories to follow it. rapidly got really confusing. So I kind of put it down and thought, okay, well, it's an idea. It's an interesting idea, that idea of just kind of drawing a line under one existence and moving on to another. And then when the tsunami of 2011 happened, I'd already, already... been very interested in Japanese literature for a long time, had friends from there, been interested in the culture, and it just seemed like the place to put my story. In between, I'd become a parent, um, a parent of two young girls, they're a bit older now, one of them is a wanderer, since she could crawl, it was away at top speed. So as a mother, I very frequently experienced loss of my child. Luckily, the police always brought her back. <laughs> On three occasions from Lambeth Country Show, actually. She's got a record. Uh, so, so, A, the, the, the situation that had happened in Japan like, really hit me like a train because I had friends who were affected by it. Um, and then I thought, well, how would any of us know how we would react in that kind of situation? So the idea of culture clashing, so Fukushima Dreams is about um, an English guy called Harry who goes to work as a a TEFL teacher in Japan and meets Sachiko at the University of Tokyo at a party and they kind of get together, get married and have this kind of long relationship uh, and then it doesn't work brilliantly. Intercultural relationships don't always work brilliantly and they come up against all these kind of differences between themselves and barriers. So... As you'll hear from the, the passage that I'm going to read to you in a few minutes, um, there comes a point where he just goes, that's it, I'm, I'm just going to walk away. I would describe it as a revenge tragedy. Um, they're very flawed parents. Chapter one. For a long time, she didn't know how long, 
There'd been nothing, a kind of dream nothing that she floated in, a mist that sometimes receded and showed the edges of the world. But still, she was not in the world. She made what brief contact was required, and then she was back in the nothing place. The nothing place needs no thought. It's an eternal now. Balance between past and future. Here, there is no colour, no sound. It's like being wrapped in cotton wool, except there's no sensation of softness, neither comforting nor terrifying. She doesn't know how long she's been here. It's been a long time. Somewhere out there is life. But she's been here for so long, it seems, that she doesn't remember the other place, the route back. It was lost in the mist sometime. That's the place where her body is. But she doesn't need it anymore. It's fine here. She doesn't think, and she doesn't know. But she dreams. The dreams are tiny moments, pearls on a wire. <coughs> she cannot tell if they're memories or constructions, fragments from her childhood, the joy of a sketch perfectly executed, opening her lunchbox to find her favourite kind of plum, smiling up at eyes that were smiling down, lighting the New Year candles. For these moments in her life that she's returning to, there are other dreams, other memories. Is that her signing the marriage register, crying with the pain of labour, holding that pillow, sick with the knowledge of what came next? She learns to tell when they're coming and dives back into the mist. They're part of him, of them, of those two men in her life that she's in flight from, her husband, her son. She likes it best when there's nothing, when she's floating bodiless in a void of her own making, a place where there are no demands on her time or on her emotions. She's swimming in an endless sea. She can be free there. One minute she was there, in the mist, and the next everything was collapsing around her. The world was shaking. From inside cupboards, dusty boxes that hadn't seen the light of day for months came crashing down, their contents striking her pulling her back into the world. She pulled the covers over her head to protect herself and lay on the bed, curled up. Slowly, she let her ears pick out sounds from the general chaos. Outside the apartment block, she could hear, hardly muffled, a colossal grinding and rumbling, and beneath it, the sound of human screams. Earthquake! Sirens wailed a warning. Get out! Get out! Get out! She ran into the other room. Here, too, everything was in disorder. All of the small elements of life tossed around as though by a giant child in a tantrum. The child? He wasn't there. And where was Harry? Had he gone running again? The baby sling swung crazily on its hook near the empty bouncer. She turned to the door, and that was when everything collapsed. She was engulfed in cold, black water. She was blind and breathless. She was barely aware of objects hitting her as she clawed for air, no sense of up or down. And then everything was dark. She knew no more. Thank you so much. God, that was that's so enthralling. Um, these sorts of real-life events and can be incredibly evocative. For a lot of people and you mentioned yourself that you will have friends who are impacted yeah. by the tsunami how as a writer do you go about approaching you know real life events that have affected real people and still are having an impact mm. sensitively without sacrificing the drama that you need to you know drive a story 
Um, that was quite quite something that I had to be really aware of when I was researching it, actually. Um, I, I went to Japan for a month to travel up and down the northeast coast and, and visit some of those sites and um, interview some people that had been affected with it, um, which was really, I had to be quite elliptical with how I approached the topic. So in terms of the actual experience of being in the tsunami, I didn't ask any direct questions about that. That um, I pieced together from videos, from people's descriptions. Uh, basically, when I spoke to them, it was more about how it felt to live in those places and how they'd been impacted by it. So, so I suppose <coughs> that, that's how I dealt with that. The, to, to actually make them face up to that experience and their own loss was not something that I felt comfortable with. Yeah, I can imagine. With actually being around um, the space, seeing physically what had happened to the landscape and understanding the impact that it had on people's lives was probably how I handled it from a fictional point of view. And do you think it was very important for you to go to Japan and to be there and to immerse yourself in that landscape? Do you think you could have written it without having done Definitely it? not. Yeah. Um, I suppose, actually, I can't imagine ever writing a book that I hadn't lived for some time in the space where the book is set. When you describe a passage, and actually it's you, you're not just hitting one sense, you're hitting, you know, if you really want to put someone in a moment, you need to describe the taste, the touch, the smell, the sounds that are going on around, as well as the actual facts that are moving the narrative along. And I think it's very hard to do that unless you've smelt the sulfur from, from an onsen or experience the amount of spiders that are in Japanese forests. So there were so many details that you couldn't imagine unless you'd actually been there. So well, I, I think after yeah. that spider description, I won't be going anytime <laughs> soon. Guys, questions? Anyway. Yes, yeah. Carl. Uh, So I mentioned that I've got some friends in Japan, um, and some of them have been involved with the Ishinomaki Relief Organization. So um, to get a, a slightly detailed about the tsunami, some um, parts of uh, the northeast coast are particularly badly inundated. So Ishinomaki was just completely just swamped in mud. Every single bit of it was destroyed. Um, so in a way, uh, actually, they, they were reading various drafts of the book constantly and feeding back on what didn't make sense or this is how people would react. And they, some of those were expat people, some of them were Japanese people who'd been affected by it. So, so I had a lot of readers. It, long before I submitted it, it had been read by quite a few people. So. Questions? Anyone else? Oh, yes. Yeah. 
So that's a really interesting question. Actually, um, I first had the idea after the World Trade Center was was destroyed because um, I had friends in New York and I'd been visiting them, you know, back and forward a lot. Um, and New York's an, a place where many people from many different cultures can come to meet each other. So it's that probably what survives is that idea of cultures and collisions and yeah. and uh, collateral damage that that can cause to different people when. There's stuff that you don't even realise is going to conflict and, yeah. and be different kind of comes up. And as becoming a parent, it's a high-pressure high kind of situation. It really, um, as people, you, you might be a couple, but then suddenly you've got this screaming, shitting, <laughs> <laughs> torturing creature that takes up every second of your life. And you haven't, you know, those kind of buffers that you create as people the kindnesses that you do, you, it, you, they, they get worn so thin yeah. that you come up against this kind of the skeleton of each person's psyche, if you like, and that's where the friction can arise. Oh, kids I are like great, children. don't they? <laughs> <laughs> but I also see that they're really scrappy. Yeah. Any more questions? Oh, yes! <laughs> Sam! <laughs> Oh, uh, well, uh, I love Hideo Furukawa, Hanani Yoshimoto. Obviously, there's, you know, Murakami is great, uh, amazing. Um, I quite like some of the darker sides. So, um, Ryu Murakami, that's the one. Twin Locker Babies, that's a great book. So that was an inspiration. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about publishing, because this yeah. book, Fiction of Dreams, is published with Unbound. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so could you, for anyone who's not familiar with Unbound, could you just talk briefly about it and tell us what made you go down that route and rather than a traditional route of publishing? As the world gets more connected, I think you start to have geographies of interest instead of space. People can, can kind of live inside a virtual community and it doesn't really matter physically or geographically where you are, you can be connected to other people. So it kind of harnesses that. So instead of giving an advance for a book, they very transparently work out the production costs for the book and give you that as a target to crowdfund instead. Um, as to why I submitted it to Unbound, I, I submitted it to lots of people and I got the funniest responses back. I've just done a tsunami book. <laughs> um, I don't want to be typecast as a tsunami agent. I'm not naming any names. <laughs> uh, uh, what is a Japanese revenge tragedy? Who will read it? So I just got a whole kind of array of just, it just didn't seem to kind of fit anyone's list. Fantastic. Well, unbound, the, yeah. the publishing things that are sitting there, like it's quite their own usual stories or things that don't necessarily yeah. fit into exactly. Dan Johnson last, last month. Was, yeah. Because they understand that there's audiences that you can connect with, but people need their platforms. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh well, we're so glad that both your husband and Unbound have taken you off on the, on your lovely baby. Zelda, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. Right. Okay. So next up, we have Anne Patterson, author of Yes. Uh, Anne lives in London but grew up in County Antrim. She works for the NHS. Whoop. <laughs> and has and has written between shifts for many years, which is incredibly wow. commendable. Um, you're also the worthy winner of the 2016 National Flash Fiction Day 100 Word Competition, 
which is awesome. That's true. <laughs> and you're currently working on your second novel, which I can't wait to hear about. But in the meantime, we're celebrating your debut. Yes. So please welcome Anna. Yeah. Yeah, this book has taken quite a long time to write. So anybody who does write and thinks, oh, it's, I'm never going to get this finished. I had the idea to write this book last century. <laughs> and uh, some of you don't look like you've even been born in the last, last century. But anyway, when I started writing the book, I um, thought I'd write about a much older woman. So this wo the woman in the book is 50. I thought, oh, she's so old. <laughs> but sadly, I've kind of caught up with her. So it, it's a book about a woman who's had a stroke, which sounds very static. But what it means is that uh, the character Maureen, who's the narrator of the book, is in hospital. And she is kind of lying there and they got aphasia so there's something wrong with her speech and she can only say the word yes and this actually happened to a friend of my dad's actually and for a long time he could only say yes but he managed to put a lot of expression into yes so, so the yes could mean no and, and or I don't believe you and all sorts of things so anyway um, Maureen the, the character in the book is just in the bed in the, in the hospital bed saying yes she comes from a background where um, it's kind of Ulster Protestant and, and nobody really says what they think and there's a lot of secrets, there's a lot of things left unsaid but because she's not able to speak, people come and visit her, her friends, her lovers her family, people who don't like her and they tell her what they think and while she's there she kind of wishes she'd listened more when she could and she, she'd spoken more uh, but and she's got time to sort of reflect on her life. So I'm going to read you a little bit. Um, and in this extract, Maureen is, is thinking of, about her sister and something that happened when she was young. So the, these, these girls were really close when they were young and then um, they got a rather toxic mother who kind of drove them apart and secrets. They weren't allowed to tell each other things. So... Um, this is just a little story uh, that Maureen's remembering from when she was young. My mother was more concerned about how things would look, not how things were. We had to wear a cardigan, not because we were cold, but because otherwise it would look as if our mother didn't care. Shirley and I cut each other's hair once. We used mother's sewing scissors and a series of mirrors so we could show each other the styling at the back. We had been playing beauty parlour and we're, we had towels, turbans round our heads. We dolloped Pond's cold cream onto our faces and rubbed red Smarties over one another's lips. Then we started on the hair. Shirley's finished hairstyle was quirkily asymmetrical but still shoulder length in places. I ended up with tufts and hollows and a bald section at the back. Our quietness had made our mother suspicious and she burst into our salon in the cupboard under the stairs. She grabbed both of us so hard I had the sensation of a Chinese burn in my armpit. She stood us at the hall mirror. Look, look in the glass, look what you've done. How can I show my face outside this house? You'll be the talk of the country. For pity's sake, Maureen, you look as if you've been in Buchenwald. My mother sounded as if she thought it would have been better for me to be in a concentration camp than for her to have to explain what happened. 
<laughs> she locked us in the Lee house all day, and we had to pee in a bucket and drink from the dirty old tap for adding water to the animal food. At five, our father came into the meal house and discovered us. He sent us inside. Go and tell your mama you're sorry. In the house, mother was polishing the parquet floor in the hall. Sorry wasn't enough. She wanted to know whose idea it was. It was both of us at the same time. <laughs> mother put us in the, me in the spare bedroom and Shirley in the dining room. We were told where to sit and warned not to move. She interrogated us individually. No nice talk, just nasty. I could hear her shouty, infuriated whisper as she went on and on at Shirley. She couldn't bring herself to actually shout, even though we were miles from any other houses. She thumped up the stairs to start on me. I sat on the green satin eiderdown, slipping off the high bed from time to time. Sit still and listen. I am so disappointed in you. You tell me who started this whole caper. I just want the truth and then we can forget about it. I knew there would be no forgetting in this house today, so I kept quiet. I do my best and look at you. You look like a wee girl riddled with lies. And finally, the ultimate threat. I don't want a wicked girl in my house. You're the oldest. If you don't tell me who started this, you'll be sent to Barnardo's. <laughs> Tomorrow, I'll start packing this minute and there'll be no toys going with you. She reached for the suitcase on top of the wardrobe. Can Shirley come too? <laughs> I asked in a small hopeful voice. She hit me a clout that threw me back onto the green shiny bed. She'd lost control and I was scared. She'd shocked even herself. I could see her face redden as she glanced in the mirror. She came towards me again, probably to check for a mark on my face, but I ran out the door and down to get Shirley. On the way out, I lifted a whole sponge cake, cooling on the rack in the kitchen. I carried it in the skirt of my dress as we ran across the yard and up to the spring house in fear of our lives. The next day, we had the morning off school. Mother took us to the hairdressers, not Sharon's where she got her perm, but we had to go to the one owned by a Catholic lady at the bottom of the town because she was that affronted. <laughs> kick us off if that's okay yeah, so sure. obviously one of the first things we noticed about your book is its title it's so different it's one word it's one syllable it's very enigmatic was that obviously it's so central to the story but was the title your idea or was it the publishers and if it was yours I wonder if there was any friction with the, with your publisher um uh, yeah, it was my idea, mm -hmm. and he said they liked the title. Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> the end of that question. There. <laughs> However, it was quite hard for the um, person to design a cover because there wasn't much to... Anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's a wonderful title. It's very... It, you know, you see it on the shelf, and it's very gripping. You have to pick it up and have a look. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's done its job. Question. Were they, that, was, that was the thing you thought 
No, they, they expired in about 1998. But those children are younger at that time. The, 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 that's the age she was when she had the stroke, when I started writing the book. Right. And uh, so it, it is set in the, in the past. Um, uh, I'd, if I'd left it much longer, it would be a historical novel, actually. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, they, they've stayed the same, and the context has stayed the same. It's the kind of... You think about it, it's the year of, of, of the Good Friday Agreement yeah. or the Belfast. Yeah. Well, how, how did you manage to keep them original all of that long time ago? Like well, there's a lot of stopping and starting, obviously, and there was a lot of uh, putting things in drawers, as we all do. And um, I'd already had written another novel that was, wasn't published and nearly got to publication, and, by th and then I started writing this one, and I got quite... Uh, a bit depressed about it. I, 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 not depressed as in a clinical way, but I had written, I'd won a little competition in Good Housekeeping, and um, oh, that small great. publication, <laughs> Good Housekeeping. I know it was very good actually, and and I, and my novel was it, or my my short story was in the in the magazine, but this magazine stayed in my dentist's for years and years and years, and my children would say, Oh look, mum. There's the story you wrote, and and in the story I was very kind of oh I'm going to write a novel uh, in the interview, and then I thought how can I have been so optimistic, <laughs> and but so I went away and I came back and lots of kind of evening classes, writing courses. I went on an Arbonne course, and I've got a writing group that I work with who are very. Uh, increasingly honest actually which <laughs> is good but sometimes a bit harsh but that was encouraging fantastic yeah writing groups is something that has come up again and again and again as something that most authors have encouraged aspiring writers to join yeah. is that would obviously yeah. sit on yeah. that side of I it? think so I'm, I'm only because they give you deadlines so it's a bit like you know Sunday night doing your physics homework that's what I'm like okay. yeah <laughs> or not Um, well, we we started. There's a few of us went on an Arbonne course, and we stayed in touch. And then some of them have left, and some have joined. And it's it's just been a, a bit like kind of it's grown a bit like that. So yeah, fantastic. Any more questions? Because I've got loads. So. <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, I think sometimes they thought maybe like, why are you torturing yourself? If you just gave up, you wouldn't feel so all those ups and downs of trying to get a book published. But mostly supportive. My my daughter who's here tonight, she she oh, first. Oh, she? oh. Well, she's, a, she's she's a grown up. Um, but when I first started writing it, she, she used to read little pages of it and wonder why I wasn't putting a dragon in so, to make it more interesting. But, uh, so, in a whole different book. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I might have done quite well. Dragon, you know, Game of Thrones, yeah. Yeah. Northern Ireland is popular there. So, you know. Did you have the idea first? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Oh, she did. Yeah. Did you find writing groups more helpful than your friends? Um, well, I think if it's a two-way thing with writing groups because your friends are going to find it quite hard to say oh I think this is not this isn't your usual high standard or whatever <laughs> um and maybe 
it's easier because you don't take it so personally because you're all in it in it in it together you know I think sometimes taking criticism for somebody who you love and they love you you're it's hard and as we mentioned you work at the NHS yeah (laughs) really get it in there and what do you do in the NHS um, I've worked in sexual health for a long time. I'm currently focusing on HIV. Oh, but, fantastic. Um, uh, yes, not I've taught... taught <laughs> sorry, not <laughs> HIV isn't fantastic. Yeah. So, I am, so I, I'm interested great. in health. And, yeah. and, and um, yeah, it's... But I did do a lot. I spent a lot of my time doing sex education. Yeah. So I had to stop myself doing my sort of, uh, you know, very loud, no giggling at the back voice when I'm reading because that's my mode. So I had to like, no... It's okay. They're going. They're going to behave. Yeah. Well, what I was because that's a very intensive job, and we we ask a lot of writers about you know their writing routines and do they do anything to get into the sort of spirit. But how do you switch off from you know a very intensive you know job where you it requires a lot of empathy and you know personal input to writing? And do you have a routine that you do? Do you go somewhere and write? Do you write at certain times of the day? Um, I mostly write when I've got my writing group coming up and I have to do it. <laughs> and the deadline, um, yeah. And I sometimes go to cafes. I'm in some ways lucky because uh, I wear hearing aids, so I just take the batteries out <laughs> and I go into a cafe, but I keep the hearing aids in, so it sort of blocks your ear a bit. Mm. Um, there's a very good thing, which um, is it's called, it's called Neil's Toolbox or something, and, and it's, it kind of generates five words, and you've got to write a story in, in to... Uh, that has all those words in it in a certain length of time, 250 words, and it's a quite a good way of getting you going. Yes. yes. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking because we're obviously the character, main character is a woman, uh, and we've talked a bit about the role of print and the way it plays there. How does it feel? Like, what would you think actors would be taught and who might work with you where actors can maybe apply? Yeah. Excellent question. driver who got ill and he said oh it's strange being on the other side of the blanket <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it's I think I was very interested in how it, it when I, I mean I was one of these people who trained as a nurse and then decided I hated hospital because uh, the, the the way that people sometimes don't treat the person as an individual and um, in some of the, the, the kind of NHS people in the book are very empathetic and remember that she's still a person and others sort of talk a bit dismissively about it. I think I was always very conscious as even as a student nurse where things like they would people would say to patients okay we'll just pop you on your side we'll pop this under your tongue we'll roll over now and you're thinking no it's just me that's rolling over you know so uh, I think the language of hospitals and the whole kind of hierarchy and everything is oh, interesting. We'll, we'll just pop this giant needle into your yeah. arm. Yeah, exactly. As long as you've popped it in, it'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, that comes across so well. You've really depicted such a wonderful world, and we're so grateful for you coming and sharing with us tonight. Okay. Thank you Thank so you. much. Okay, so, so next up we have Samuel Fisher, um, as well as being the distinguished author of The Chameleon. Sam is, the, is one half of Burley Fisher, which is an independent bookshop in Haggerston, which you should all check out, and also founder of Peninsula Press, a small independent publisher whose list, is, list to date focuses on experimental voices and includes the riffraff's owner, Olivia Sudjic. 
wow, you made this word, you know? Yeah. <laughs> lots, of, lots of consonants. Yeah, exactly, climbing. <laughs> so with a CV like that, we're thrilled that Samuel has been able to find time to join us tonight. So please welcome Samuel Bishop. <laughs> Thank you very much to Rosie and Tony for letting me being such generous leaders and set this up uh, and letting me come along this evening. Uh, so I wrote The Chameleon uh, and it's a book that came out of, I suppose I was thinking about this idea that you get told that you should write what you know and as a mid-twenties white man thinking my experience is not that interesting, <laughs> um, came up with this, I, I started to think about this idea that being in Kashmir all my time reading books, um, that was that's something that I know about, and that could perhaps be what I write about. Um, <coughs> so I started to think I, I got this idea that if what would happen if you had a narrator who was a book that could be any book, and then from that material you have to decide what to tell if you're telling a story. Um, so I started to think about that, and then I didn't want it to be just a kind of <coughs> intellectual cold cerebral experiment um, and I've, I've always really been interested in spice novels uh, and thinking about those kind of like useless guilty male protagonists that seem to kind of continually hold a fascination um, for us and why that is uh, and what they say about um, what they say about uh, the present moment I suppose uh, so that that's where the that's where the novel came from so the narrator start in the present day uh, its current owner is dying, he was a spy during the Cold War. Uh, and then it uses his story, I suppose, as a way of learning how to tell its own. So it's an actor telling his own history going back 800 years. So I, I suppose it's kind of a novel about, about storytelling <coughs> and about the common ground that those stories provide um, in terms of exchanging experience and how, how you can kind of figure out those things which are universal um, using those structures the stories provide. I'm going to read a little bit where it's, it's quite early on in the novel where the narrator uh, finds out that this, the subject of the story that it's telling uh, has been writing and gets pissed off and decides just to drop this guy and start talking about something else entirely. Um, yeah, so I'll just, uh, I'll just go ahead. There was a time that I found myself in the possession of Alexander Graham Bell. Not the one that you know, but the prototype version. It was early in 1870, a particularly bitter winter. He was still yet to become Alexander Graham Bell, the great man and public figure, the one every school child has come to associate with the benign bearded portrait that is placed along pi alongside pictures of the first telephone in their history books. <coughs> at that time, he was still simply Alex. He was teaching at a school for deaf girls in South Kensington. Every morning at 8.15, punctual as you like, he would stride into the room and start teaching before he'd even taken off his coat. The first couple of hours were devoted to arithmetic and comprehension. These subjects he taught diligently, but with an impatience he could hard with an impatience he could hardly hide. It wasn't until the next part of the day that he really came to life. The portion of the lesson devoted to the study of his father's visible speech. When he told the class to close their copybooks, the girls immediately sat up a little straighter. He would scratch out a series of curved lines on the board the symbols that made up his father's phonetic alphabet, and tell the girls to read out what was on the board in order to translate the phonetic symbols into English in their copybooks. The class would erupt into a cacophony. 
The system was designed to teach people how to speak mechanically, breaking down language into the individual movements of lips and tongue that cast words along a living breath. Alec would stride around the classroom pulling faces at the girls, showing them how to improve their vowel sounds and smiling encouragement at those who were struggling. Elizabeth was one of those who struggled. I'd been staying with her for a couple of years and, bored by the genteel life that she led, got myself brought along to Alec's classes. One morning, in the visible speech portion of the class, she started choking. The sound stuck in her throat, and as they lodged there, a terror gripped her. Her face turned red, her hands shook, and her lips quivered. Alec grabbed her arms, forcing her attention on him, and bringing her back into the room. It's a frightful place to get stuck, mid-utterance, choking on your own words. It's a place I'm familiar with. I know that you've only just been introduced, but we'll need to leave Alec aside for a moment. I want to tell you about my greatest fear. In 1941, a man who was going blind wrote a story about a library. When I first became aware of it, I felt like I was reading an autobiography written by a future version of myself that had splintered under the weight of a perfidious madness. The library, otherwise known as the universe, is infinite. There is a book for every possible combination of letters, every possible sequence of words. Every thought, act and expression has already been described. It means that the universe was spent before it even began. It makes the passage of time redundant. It's not only the impossibility of progress that paralyzes the inhabitants of this universe, the wretched librarians, but also the totality of meaning. They are wretched, sorry. Uh, <laughs> all librarians. Uh, the library <laughs> does not contain a single piece of nonsense. Every single word, uh, every single word of every book has significance in one of the library's uh, secret languages. The narrator discusses the possibility of a so-called bookman a book which is the perfect coder, both encapsulating and delineate, delineating all other books. The man that read this book would be a god. Now, aside from my brief sojourn into the skin of a murderer, I'd always worn books already published. I might alter them a little, add a word here, remove a paragraph there, but they would still generally be recognisable to the people that had written them. It was through these little acts of expression, deviations from what already existed, that I made myself, and it was what gave me limits. But what would happen if I took those limits away? If I allowed every possible combination of words to flood my pages in an endless procession? If I described everything that has and will happen, everything that can and cannot, I began to wonder whether I was capable. Say on that day in 1870, in Alex's classroom, I'd been cycling through every permutation of this infinite library, and he had happened to pick me up in the split second I described in exacting detail the circumstances and moment of his death. Would Alex go on to become the man who history remembers? Or would he falter in the face of this knowledge, scratching around in an attic, fretting his life away? Better still, what if, I picked up my, what, what if he picked me up to find my pages were filled with a biography of his life up to the present moment, ending with a description of him holding me in his hands moments before massacring the entire class? Would he feel hopelessly compelled to complete this terrible prophecy? Really, really wonderful. Thank she you. says, turning her page to try and find her name. Any librarians in the audience? I just realised that. Well. Yeah, <laughs> we love librarians yeah. here. I was um, being Sam, recorded. Uh, they're a key demographic for me. <laughs> Sam speaks for himself. We love librarians. Big up the librarians. And um, by our own account, um, the Chameleon is quite a strange book. Yeah. Um, which you may or may not have picked up on. It actually.
actually is incredibly accessible. When you start reading it, I read it, I loved it, and found it incredibly easy to read. What do you think is the key to writing a book that is niche, but that has, you know, things that can hook the audience and that the audience can hook on to? Um, I think making sure that it has a, a story, which is, I mean, with the book being about stories being the common ground, over which we share our experiences, if it has a, a story which draws you in and pulls you along, I think that regardless of what um, kind of body of influences it's drawing on, uh, and w- uh, yeah, then it should it, it should draw, it should draw you along. Otherwise, I suppose as a storyteller, you're not really doing your job. Um, so I think yeah, it's 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 taking the reader and teaching, uh, making sure that the book teaches the reader how to read it. I suppose. Um, because I mean, there are lots of books that are Clockwork Orange being a very good example. The first few pages you read it, you think, "What the hell is going on?" But it's very cleverly constructed so that you learn the language that mm. writers using and build build the universe very quickly, so that within three pages you understand what all of these bizarre words mean. Mm. And I, I think it's a similar thing of kind of setting the parameters and then making sure that you bring the reader along with you. Mm. That's great, really great advice. Questions for the book. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's very difficult. Di- that distance is with your own work is so difficult to maintain. And I think time is the only thing that when you, well, what I found when I was with with my own work, you come back to it. Say you'd left it for a month or two months, and you think, oh my god, <laughs> that's horrible. Uh, <laughs> and then you're quite quickly to be able to see how you can make changes to figure those things out. Um, yeah. I think it's it's difficult editing and writing at the same time. I generally don't do that. If I think well, I don't only write when I'm not editing because I think when you're working with someone else's work, their ideas just completely populate your mind, and you, yeah, I suppose you're kind of writing along with them as a kind of shadowy background figure. <laughs> so I think that it's not, yeah, it's not, that's kind of why I went into book selling. At Peninsula, the, the press is a very new thing. Uh, the first book actually comes out in two weeks, so um, yeah, I, I don't do both at the same time. Is the answer to that? That's very sensible. Now I'm scared of the shadowy presence on the ground. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, Hi. Um, yeah, definitely. Sex scenes, I think, are key to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> book sex scenes. Uh, well, I think the narrator is worried about that because the only other intelli- 
like people that encounters are, are people, not books. Yeah. So it's hyper conscious of that, and it's hyper conscious of its own body, um, and looking at other human bodies and then relating that to itself is, is one way of kind of yeah making it relatable and it gives it, it gives a distance which uh, as an observer which i think therefore it can comment on yeah the, the material of what it's talking about is about other human beings so you'd hope it's not just kind of yeah a kind of dry listening of thoughts about other books and how they and, and bindings and you know <laughs> and printing things and yeah so the humans being foregrounded is just Although there are some very interesting bits about bindings. We yeah, shouldn't let them should yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we we interviewed Sam for the Refraff podcast and he goes into more detail about book sex. So if that's something that <laughs> interests you in any way, do tune in. Yeah. It's an excellent episode. One for the heads, for the nerds. Absolutely. Yes. Um it's kind of touched on but not fully explained. Um because I didn't want it to be, because it, it becomes a genre question now, I think. If it's a kind of a, a magic fantasy thing, then you are stepping into that genre and then you, you need to follow those conventions because those are the reader, that's the reader that you're writing towards, I suppose. Because um, it is quite rigid uh, and I think you do need to have a reader in mind when you're writing your book. Um, so I, di I did keep that kind of vague. Uh, but there is bits of the origin story I suppose there but that kind of makes it too uh, magic <laughs> I suppose well the thing um, uh, I'll do read my story out again because I really like your story and uh, I think you're really you know black and you've got some grit what thing do you think especially given what you said at the beginning about write what you know or, <laughs> or what what's the sort of thing you think stories out here about writing it is about writing your own story it is about reading your yeah, I think it's more about reading books than it's about writing books. Um, because, and, and what that's meant to me in terms of uh, dealing with experiences in my, in my own life, uh, because that experience creeps in, even if you think it's yeah. utterly boring. <laughs> you can only write out of your own life. And uh, uh, I think, yeah, it's, I, I, I felt that it's the act of reading is a very important and worthwhile thing and it's exploring that I suppose yeah very good and yes just down here so in order to just progress with your story you say it's an endless chain of ideas so you're reading books yeah 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 so so that was a Borges story that he was describing yeah in the yeah, yeah. so I'm just interested in um, you know there's a philosophical question of what Borges coded was information about the origin of those seven secrets mm-hmm <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> no, yeah, I might have to say this one is the break. I, don't know. I think, I think, I think no. I think that's kind of the what Borges was getting at in that story. Um, yeah, the kind of oppressiveness of information sometimes is a barrier to knowledge uh, and a barrier to to wisdom. Um, and that's kind of what he's saying. If you if if you are surrounded by every iteration of every possibility. It's kind of, yeah, you. It creates the impossibility for any kind of knowing or any broader wisdom. Yeah. So that 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 that's what the narrator is taking from that story, saying I can't, you know, to total information is not knowledge. In order to kind of know myself, I need to 
take myself away from that and close myself off from it so that I can, yeah. So it's, it's treading that fine line between total ignorance and total submersion and the, all of the kind of strands of human history. And, and following on from that, how do you think writers, you know, aspiring writers, should go about trying to boundary themselves? You know, you know as a writer, you could write about absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, sit down, you know, at your desk and, and boundary yourself to one story, at least at a time? You know, not saying that, you know. Uh, I think follow the characters. If you're writing li- literary fiction, uh, that in terms of the structuring of how I did it, they kind of if you spend enough time with them they, they'll they'll tell you where to go with it um it depends what you want to write i think if you're writing genre fiction if you're writing sci-fi then often it will be led by the ideas and that's that's really interesting as well um so yeah i think as with anything just think about what you want to get out of it and um and what the writers that you like why you read them and yeah be a reader uh, yeah <laughs> Be a reader. Great advice. Samuel, thank you so much. We'll kick off with our first author of our second half, which is Kate Lever. Um, Kate is going to be talking about her debut non-fiction book, The Friendship Cure, um, originally from Down Under, Kate is a freelance journalist who writes for the likes of The Pool, Vogue, Glamour, Broadly, and The Guardian, just to name a few. Um, please give it up for Kate Lever. Um, so, yeah, I'm representing the non-fiction genre for this evening. Um, <laughs> um, essentially, um, I was sitting in Hyde Park one day um, on an unseasonably warm London day uh, and I read an article that was called something to the effect of how our friendships change as we age by a journalist called Julie Beck for the Atlantic um, and she essentially said that as we grow older we get married we have kids we start to shed our friends because we're not biologically or legally bound to them um, and I had just moved across the world to, you know, 12,500 kilometres away from everyone I knew. Um, and so was really hyper aware of how much I valued my friendships. And so basically this article scared me into writing an 83,339 word reply. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, that's where the beginning of this book um, happened. And I just sort of began researching and... Uh, I'm a, I'm a journalist, so it was just such a novelty and a pleasure for me to be able to go so in-depth into one subject because I'm so used to kind of turning around a 1,000-word feature um, quite quickly. And, and the research, while it's great and exciting, is usually just like getting an expert to tell me their opinion quite quickly on the telephone. <laughs> um, so for me to be able to go and take the time to really talk to people, really read scientific studies properly, and devote a bunch of time to delving into a subject um, was really lovely and used a totally different part of my brain. Um, So that's the kind of genesis of the book, and really it is a mixture. I couldn't really decide on on a specific genre, so it's kind of a mixture of pop science, pop psychology, pop culture, um, 
with a spattering of memoir, because uh, I think if you write about something like friendship, you can't help but make it personal. I think it would have been disingenuous of me to leave myself out of it. So there are kind of little bits and pieces of my story and my life um, within it. Um, as far as, I mean, as far as being qualified to write about friendship, um, I'm just kind of astoundingly lucky and I have um, some really wonderful people in my life. And I've spent a lot of time, um, I, I live with mental illness, I have bipolar disorder, which kind of, it can be quite a lonely experience. And I spent a lot of time therefore kind of thinking about loneliness and thinking about friendship and thinking about how those two things interact. Um, and when I started doing some research into friendship, I realized how closely correlated it was with loneliness, which I now believe is possibly our great modern public health crisis. Um, so the friendship cure, that's where the name comes from, um, is just this idea of sort of putting a spin on some of the very devastating statistics on loneliness um, by saying that perhaps the most curative thing we could do uh, is aggressively launch a campaign of kindness towards one another and learn how to be better friends um, to our existing friends and to people who are not yet in our lives. Um, so it's basically everything to do with friendship that I had an opinion on. It's got a lot of science. It's also got a, like a, a weird amount about how Chandler and Monica shouldn't have ended up together in Friends. Um, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I take myself seriously sometimes, um, at other times less so. Uh, so. So that, you know, um, I wrote a book that I would want to read that doesn't particularly stick to any genre. Um, and I've chosen um, an excerpt to read you this evening from the chapter that I tried really, really hard to get out of writing. Um, <laughs> when you submit a non-fiction proposal, you have to do quite a detailed outline of your chapter plans. Um, and this is actually a, sub a, a chapter that someone, that my agent told me was really important, um, that I tried really, really hard to wriggle my way out of as I was writing the book because I just hated it. I just, it was, for a time, it was the bane of my existence. Um, but for some reason, people have responded to it and it is about work friendships. Um, I looked at a lot of different incarnations of friendship and why they're important and how we can improve them and what they give us. And as we spend so much time, unless you're freelancer like me, in which case your main work friend is my dog, um, <laughs> we spend so much time at work that I think it's really important that we have um, beautiful work friendships. So this is from chapter six, which is called Work Wives and Nine to Five Husbands. Have you ever noticed how tiny John Travolta's beard is? <laughs> it's really small, like very, very little. Or at least it was around the year 2014. In fact, perhaps it doesn't even qualify as a beard. It's more an infinitesimal island of facial hair that set itself up on John Travolta's face and refused to leave. It can't have been an aesthetic decision, surely not. Perhaps it's hiding something, some sort of grotesque chin abnormality. Perhaps it's in a movie contract. Whatever it is, the discovery of John Travolta's tiny, tiny beard was perhaps the greatest moment of friendship celebration I've had in an office environment. It truly, truly broke me and a number of others. To this day, photographic proof of the tiny beard can still undo me. Circa 2014, my friend Rosie and I were browsing the internet, it was our job to do so at the time, and came across an article by a very funny Australian journalist called Nick Bond. 
Nick announced the debut of The Tiny Beard with a full photograph of John Travolta in a suit on the red carpet. What followed was a series of photos, each zoomed in slightly more than the last, <laughs> until the final one, which was literally just the offending facial hair in question. Something about the simple genius of this article really tickled Rosie and me. We came very close to printing it out and wallpapering the entire office with it. For a start, we couldn't quite believe that Nick Bond could get away with publishing increasingly zoomed in photographs of John Travolta's beard as a legitimate piece of journalism. We worshipped him for this act of pure silliness. To us, it was perfect. Rosie and I both often wrote about social issues and famous people for a living, and nothing pleased us more than the, this flagrant disregard for the rules of journalism. Of course, the content was perfect too. I don't know if you know this, but the dissemination of news like the fact that John Travolta had grown a tiny beard is actually the reason the internet was invented in the first place. As far as celebrity journalism goes, it's got it all. Intrigue, suspense, chin sweat. <laughs> and then there was the twist. Rosie had been to a red carpet event in LA and actually had a photograph taken with John Travolta and the tiny beard. <laughs> her face was nearly touching the beard as they leaned in for a selfie. She brought the photo up on her laptop and by this taste, we were screaming. We were in such fits of giggles, there was no chance of us doing any proper work all afternoon. We cried actual salty tears of happiness. And worse, if we're gonna think about workplace productivity for a moment, is that it was contagious. Obviously, people wanted to know what we thought was so funny, so the image of John Travolta's tiny beard was circulated around the office, and we started dragging everyone into the joy of its discovery. When someone went to a meeting or to the bathroom, we'd change their screensaver to a picture of the beard. I don't think I've ever laughed at anything so hard in my life, to be honest. And that's what work friendship can be like. Magnificent and funny and irreverent. It can make work a joy and can literally change your entire attitude to getting up every morning and turning up at the same place every day. Good work friends are total game changers. Sure, they can be a huge distraction, whispering about your latest Tinder date as you mainline free cookies over the sink and dedicating entire email threads to Ryan Gosling's true feminist intentions are not, strictly speaking, what your boss would consider the best use of your time, but I'd argue that everyone needs a certain level of escapism built into their corporate lives or they'd go mad. Work can be satisfying and fulfilling and all that lovely stuff, but it can also be hectic and painful and dull. We're in the middle of an epidemic of workplace stress and it's causing very serious mental health issues across many industries. What with the immersive experience of having a smartphone and an internet connection, we are increasingly forgetting to switch off altogether and more of us are allowing work to seep into every goddamn orifice of our lives. With that in mind, it's bloody nice to have a friend to share it with. Having Rosie at work meant I always had a confidant, an advisor, and a buddy. We could go, go and get beef foe down the road and debrief about boys, swap secrets, and talk about work. We could check on each other when things got emotional, back each other up in meetings, and big up each other's work. It was a genuine delight to have her as my work buddy, and we've kept that friendship going since we both left the job we, we were doing when we met, and when the John Travolta incident happened. <laughs> the friendship worked because we were both senior employees, so there was no power disparity between us, and we, we rarely went after the same stories, so there was no envy or competition. We spent so much time together too, probably more than we spent with our families. 
She was, in the popular language of the cool people, my work wife. People often refer to their closest friends at work as their work wife or work husband, which probably hints at the fact that we see these people more often than the people we choose to marry slash sleep with slash share residential space with slash unconditionally adore. The coining of that phrase probably also has something to do with the level of emotional support that person provides. Work can be an extremely stressful place, and your work wife or husband is your sanctuary and your support. That is, if you've got a good one. And I just, before I sit down, want to share with you two of my favorite statistics from my research for this um, topic. Um, one, which I find really alarming, it was kind of the motive for writing this chapter, even though I tried to get out of it, um, is that according to a study, only 17% of people in the UK say they have a close friend at work. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, like, the idea of making friends at work is, um, is, is a really novel one. Uh, I think that's because I think that so many people just say hello at the lift every morning to the same person and don't bother to push past small talk and actually find out who that person is or invite them for Friday night, night drinks because it takes a certain level of bravery to do that kind of thing. The second statistic, which is probably my favorite statistic from this book, um, is that of those people who have close friends at work, 23% of them would consider quitting if their best friend left their job, <laughs> um, which I think is fantastic because it's so dramatic and extra, um, but does, does like, reflect how important friendships at work can be. And 10% and of those people said that if their friend at work left, it would be akin to a bereavement, which again, dramatic and the kind of thing I'm very into. So um, yeah, the, the moral of that story and, and the, the, the plea for the rest of my book is, is to do friendship better and to invite people in your life who may be potential friends uh, to become real ones, even in our work environments. That was wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I found oh, it hilarious. Thank you. Particularly oh, good. the bit about the beard. So I'm so glad you chose to <laughs> read that bit. I was going to read something about depression and I was like, nah. <laughs> it's an unusual beard. Everyone needs to go home and Google that immediately. That should be the first thing that you do when you leave. Um, so the thing that I found, like, the, it's the personal bits in the book that really make the points stick in your head and really make them, make them land. And um, I just kind of wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your decision to include those parts of your life in it and um, and offer any tips to people that are writing non-fiction that potentially yeah. are thinking of doing the same thing? Well, um, I guess more than anything, I wanted my version of non-fiction to be accessible um, because I think a lot of people get frightened by the, the idea of like a factual book um, and, and think it's going to be very clinical or academic. And I wanted to use a lot of academic information but make it extremely readable and even funny at times. Um, so I kind of, it was just a very strong instinct of mine to include my own life. Um, I mean, a, probably a really good example is that I was writing about whether men and women can be friends and I was interviewing a lot of pairs of male and female best friends and asking them whether they've ever, ever fancied each other and whether they still ki think about kissing each other and all sorts of awkward things. And I realized that I had to suffer for my art and that I had to um, interview the one male friend that I kissed as a teenager and uh, knew had feelings for me for many years and um, the one person who has like continuing unspoken sexual tension with me over the period of maybe 16 years. So I... Um, <laughs> Awkward. 
interviewed him, um, which, as I say, suffered from my art. I just, I felt, and it, it was wonderful. He was very generous and open. And because of the time difference, he was in Australia and I was in the UK. I was having coffee while he had a big glass of red wine. So he was very open. Um, so it kind of like, it came to me quite naturally that I would be writing about other people um, and studies and statistics and stuff and think to myself, this is relevant to my life, and if it's relevant to my life, it's probably relevant to other people's lives. So because I know my own experience, I will share my own experience in the hope that people find something to relate to. Um, so that, I mean, my greatest advice for anyone trying to write nonfiction, if possible, I mean, obviously there are so many topics where it's not at all appropriate to insert yourself. And I was very uh, reticent to over-represent myself. I didn't, this is not a memoir at all. Um, and I didn't want to shove myself into places where I didn't feel welcome in terms of the topic um, or the, you know, the subject matter and stuff like that. Um, so I guess, I think nonfiction, I think it's a fallacy that nonfiction, good, relatable, sort of popular nonfiction can be objective. I think writing it, especially if you're writing it with a sense of humor, ultimately has part of you in it. So you may as well run with that. Yeah. Absolutely, well, it works, and your sense of humour is like all over it. Thank you. I think, as everyone saw. Um, does anyone have any questions before I fire away with loads more? Yes. You mentioned so this article in the Atlantic was talking about how friendship evolved over time, <coughs> and this example you just gave of speaking to your friends about yeah. your relationship. What did you find in your research in answer to that question of how, as we grow older, especially I'm thinking of childhood friends. Yeah. How do you navigate that shift when you have your interests can differ and your lives do change and it's your best friend from childhood? Yeah. So part of you wants to hold on to that, part of you, I don't know. How, what have you found? I think it's really interesting, especially with the childhood friend example, because I think when you have a certain level of cumulative shared history, you can sometimes misread that as intimacy <coughs> that's no longer there and hold on to a friend. Um, a friend that is not necessarily appropriate for you to have in your adult life, um, someone who was relevant to you as a teenager. And some of us are different people. I'm certainly someone different than I was when I was 15 and I find that a lot of the friendships I had then are no longer kind of the right thing to be in my life anymore. So I think as we age, um, like a statistic that really alarmed me from a, 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 an evolutionary psychologist at Oxford is that we lose two friendships every time we get into a romantic relationship. Um, and I think as people, yeah. That's, I, that's really shaking the room up. Yeah. Every, every time I say that to a room of people, people are like, shit, Helen. <laughs> um, uh, so I think there's definitely, I think it's, it's interesting because I think as we get older, um, we lose, we start to shed friends because of circumstance and logistics and we've got to fit in the laundry and feeding the baby and going to Pilates and a love life and a career and all that sort of stuff and friendship just bumps down the, the priority list so I think that's a sad element however I also think that as we get older we get a better quality control and we're able to do kind of I always encourage people to do a bit of an audit of their friendship group and decide who belongs in their life um, so I had someone recently, I've become like, since I've written this book, like an unofficial agony aunt for anyone. <laughs> People are like, you've written about friendship. Great, I have this dilemma. <laughs> Do I break up with my childhood best friend of 30 years because we've just had a fight? And my advice there is, is to really like, be honest with yourself and work out whether that person um, is still relevant to you and whether they're doing you good. 
because I think we hold on to it out of complacency and fear of loneliness. We hold on to a lot of people who are harmful and, and perhaps a child friend could become that if, if they're no longer as joyous as they once were. I don't know if that answers your question. I hope so. <laughs> Go home and cull all of your friends that aren't <laughs> well, giving you gifts regularly. <laughs> yeah. I know, gifts aren't essential, guys. No, but I, I, am, I am an advocate of the friendship cull if you do it correctly and don't ghost people. Yeah? Um, do you have anything in the book that addresses how to do that or how to not feel guilty when doing that? And that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's literally like... <laughs> it's over. I mean, like, to be honest, I don't think there's a perfect solution for not feeling guilty because I think that's a perfectly natural human reaction to getting rid of someone in, from your life. Um, there, is a whole, <laughs> there is a whole chapter on friendship breaks up, breakups um, where I spoke to a lot of people. It was quite harrowing to do, actually. Um, and a lot of the people I spoke to had actually never spoken in their lives to anyone about their friendship breakups because we just don't have the language for it. We know how to deal with a romantic relationship but not with a friendship uh, breakup. Um, so, yeah, there's advice on how to do it because I think you need to work out if you're in a toxic relationship, friendship or if you're in a friendship that has just naturally come to an end, in which case breaking up with someone in a kinder way uh, is preferable. Um, so there's definitely instructions on how to do that um, with the full knowledge that like, there are so many personal variables for every friendship that I can't possibly advise unless I knew the specific details. Um, but there's a lot of, like I spoke to psychologists, I spoke to a lot of people who've lost friends um, and who've broken up with friends and I feel have a much better understanding of the pain that that causes. So many questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a sort of Travolta watcher of some type. <laughs> 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 Since this sort of a heyday in Look Who's Talking To, it's not the beard's small, his face is not very small. Oh, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> but, um, my serious question is, you, you mentioned you didn't want to write that chapter. Was that about chapter just about sort of friendship at work? Yes. And how come, uh, was, it, was it like not your idea to write it? Did someone Actually, put it in or mm. did you just put it in? the plan not really wanting to do it but then finally you had to fulfill that plan actually i actually hadn't stopped to wonder why i hated it so much and it actually was someone else's idea it was um i had a whole i went on a big um in my original proposal went on quite a big rant about refugees um and political stuff basically how we need to apply friendship um to people who come to our country and we need to inject more kindness into our immigration <coughs> policy um, and she was like great point not relevant to your book strictly speaking get rid of it also you haven't mentioned work friendships and because I work freelance it just didn't really occur to me to write a chapter about office friendships so actually you've hit the nail on the head it was my agent's idea to put that chapter in and it was the one thing that she that wasn't originally mine and she took away the one I actually really cared about um, so I love her to death I'm, I'm not bitter about it, but that is probably the reason that I felt it was kind of foreign to me and I didn't, because it wasn't a natural, it didn't come from my own original idea. Um, and, and also it's been a while since I've been in an office, so I kind of had to, you know, really put myself back in the John Travolta day uh, to remember the joys of work friendship. Um, and yeah, 
probably for that reason it was really difficult for me. Are you glad Yeah, I am quite, yeah, because a lot of people work and their work friendships are really important to them. So I've had a lot of great feedback on that chapter as it happens. And I tell everyone that I hate it, but other people don't, so that's nice. Thank you so much, too. Um, Kate, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, our final author of the night is Guy Gunaratney. Um He's the author of In Our Mad and Furious City. Um, he hails from northwest London and has worked as a designer, a documentary filmmaker, and a video journalist covering post-conflict areas around the world. So putting us all to shame. Um, he was also shortlisted for the Fourth Estate Guardian BAME Short Story Prize, which is no small feat. Please give it up for Guy and Aratney. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming, first of all. That's amazing. Uh, could be anywhere you're here. Uh, but, I mean, you guys, Amy and Rosie, don't never disappoint with this kind of thing. So thank you guys, too. And happy birthday. Oh, yeah. um, so, yeah, In Our Man of Your Cities is uh, my first novel. Um, I, I, yeah, okay. Um, it's set around a housing state in northwest London, in, in Neasden specifically, which is where I grew up. Um, and it centers around the events, uh, the aftermath of an event, um, strictly speaking, a, a, a terrorist attack, but it's sort of a, what's usually called a lone wolf terrorist attack. Um, an individual, whether they're affiliated with a, a larger group or not, it's usually a, an individual, usually a young man, um, who goes out and, and does something atrocious. And, and it's sort of not based on, but it's an inspired is not the right word, but like uh, it, the, the germ of the idea of the book probably came from. Uh, the Killing of Lee Rigby, I don't know if you, everyone remembers this, a couple years ago, um, uh, an off-duty soldier was, was killed in Woolwich um, by two young men um, who sort of grew up in London. Um, and I remember seeing that and uh, seeing the video footage that came out afterwards, I don't know if you remember this, there was a, a brave woman walked up to one of the killers, Michael Adeblajo, and actually asked him why he did what he did, and he sort of spoke about his, his motive and stuff. And the thing that struck me about that video that came out, which is probably what sort of spurred me on to write the book, um, is the identification I had with the killer, which is a weird thing to say, um, and uncomfortable, um, because the way he, he spoke, he, wrote, he spoke in road dialect, uh, sort of the, the dialect of, of London young people, the, the dialect I, I grew up with, um, the way he carried himself, the clothes he wore, just reminded me of people I went to school with. And that, it was too close for comfort for me in terms of, yeah, you're not supposed to identify with, with the monster, you're supposed to identify with everyone else. And so, um, rather, it, it's, it's one of those sort of uncomfortable feelings, I think, as a writer, I, I, I've always felt like, oh, that's, there's something there that I should probably interrogate about myself and, and, uh, and, and people around me. And it was interesting enough to, to follow through, right? It's like one of those things that I think is interesting enough, and it's an obsession that you could probably burn through a couple of <laughs> couple of words, um, interrogating it. Um, it's yeah. So a similar incident happens at the beginning of the book, and it follows five characters um, around the housing estate and how they have to confront uh, having to deal with the fact that they live in sort of extreme times and also the extreme isms um, inside themselves. Um, everyone has, has sort of said things or done things that 
um, might have hurt people or, or, or said done things that I think afterwards they they they've looked at themselves and think, well, I never thought I would be capable of, of doing that. Um, and the, the 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 characters themselves, each character has to confront aspects about themselves that that sort of speak to that. Um, it's written in, in in vernacular as well. Um, so three young men who grew up around the, ca the, the, the housing estate, it's written in the road dialect that I grew up with. Um, there's a woman, uh, Carolyn, who, who speaks to her experience in Belfast, so it's in Northern Irish dialect, um, during the Troubles, and uh, an elderly character called, called Nelson who speaks to his experience during the Notting Hill race riots in the 1950s in London. Um, um, so yeah, it, it's, it tackles a, a, a specifically you know, current uh, subject matter that is on everyone's mind, but I think hopefully towards the end there's also an aspect of hope. Um, but I'm going to read from the intro of the book, so it's at the very beginning. There were things that I learned to call fury as a younger. Fury was a fearsome drum, some hungry and hot temper, ill spirit or madness never touched us for long but followed our bodies for time. See London. This city taints its young. If you're from here, you'd know, innit? All our faces were pinched sour. Even the good few I spent my early way with. We were all born into the menace from day dot. These were the hidden violences. Day-long deaths that snuffed out our small and limited futures. We grew up around these towers, so struggle was a standard echo in our speech, in thought, in action. But it was only after the release of that one video, clipped from a phone of a witness, that everyone else saw the truth. The image on every news channel and paper, a black boy had killed an off-duty soldier. Soldier boy, we called him. The black young had stopped soldier boy and struck him down with a cleaver. Then he wrapped his body in a black cloth and strung him up from a road sign. Stuff was dark. Darkest because it happened in a space so familiar. In our city, on road and in broad daylight. The sound of a black boy's voice came next, shouting into the camera about the infidel, the sinful Kufar. It was on radio and television, an endless loop. He called himself the Hand of Allah, but to us, he looked as if he had just rolled out the same school gates as us. He had the same train as we wore, spoke the same road slang we used. The blood was not what shocked us. For us, it was his face like a mirror, reflecting our own confused and frightened hearts. See, violence made this city. Those living, born and raised, grow up with it like an older brother. On that final day when flames licked the domes of our painted mosque, we were all far beyond saving. Fury was like a fever in the air, a corrupt mass of bodies pulsing together in pain and rhetoric. Muhajirun were herding our people along August Road and had us stand on the burnt earth like a testament. There was a violence in our brotherhood, that much is clear, though we never knew how much of that violence came from us or the road beneath our feet. We were London's scowling youth. As siblings of rage, we were never meant to stray beyond the street. We might not have known it with our eyes so alight, but it was true. Our miseducation is proof, isn't it? Those school corridors were like cold chambers. Anyone who went to St. Mary's would attest. Our bodies were locked for verbal assaults, our words clipped and surging with our own code, and fuck anyone else who disagreed, you know? Violence shattered our language, and our lines tagged the streets. They'd read us on walls, in open seams, and dim lamplight. We'd cotch on park benches and waste air, sock-mouthed and bound, stupid to our fates the entire time. 
Our tongues were so soaked in our defenses, we hoped only to outlast the day. Just look at how we spoke to one another. Enito, my man and Pussio. Our friendships we called bloods and our homes we called our ends. We reveled in throwing crafted curses at our mothers and receiving hard slaps to heads. Our combs cut lines in our hair and we scarred our eyebrows with blades. We became warrior tribes of man-them, slave kings and palm-swiping cubs we were. Our parents knew nothing. And most others? Most others only knew us from the noise we made at the back of the buses. Close without touch. That was the only love permitted, but it was deeply felt among our own. We smoked weed together, borrowed idioms and shocked American verses. In our caustic speech, we threw out platitudes, in our guts, our feisty wit. It was like we lived upon jagged teeth in the dark in this bone-cold London city, a young nation of mongrels, constantly measuring ourselves against what we were supposed to be, which was what I couldn't tell you. For those of us who had an elsewhere in our blood, some foreign origin, we had richer calling, colours and ancient callings to hear, fight with, more likely, and fight for, a push-pull of ancestry and meaning. For me, that meant Pakistan and its local masks, which in Neesden meant going mosque and dodging Mahajirun. For my breeders on a state, they were from all over. Jamaicans, Irish Pikeys, Nigerians, Ghanaians, South Indians, Bengalis. Proper Commonwealth kids, isn't it? <coughs> Even the Arab squaddies from UAE. We'd all spy those private school boys from Belmont and Mill Hill, and we'd wonder, how would it have felt to come from the same story? To have been moulded out of one thing and not of many? There was nothing more foreign to us than that. Nothing more boring and pale to imagine. Ours was a language, a dubbing of noise, which, while theirs was a one-note, void of new feeling in any sort sense of place. Place was our own. This place. Whether we heard the whispers of our older roots never mattered. What mattered for us was the present, terse and cold, where we could make our own coarse music. This is where we found our young madnesses, after all, on road. Or rather, between the roads we knew and the world we felt we could never hope to claim. So it was like watching our face made foul when we saw that video. When that soldier boy was butchered by a homegrown brother. That's when we knew we were all lost to the ruin. They called it terrorism, but terrorism never felt so close. Even when we saw the madness rise when the hijab lady was slashed in the car park in Bricky. Or when Michael was knifed in North. The swell only peaked after that soldier boy's killing. I think about why it had to be younger that done it. Why it was that when we saw his eye, the eyes of the black boy with the dripping blade, we felt closer to him than the soldier boy slain in the street. But now I know in this city and its sickness of violence and mean living, these things come in sharp ruptures that don't discern. It was a fury. Horror curled into horror. Violence trailing back for centuries. I heard as much in mosque and from the rude boys on road. So when the riots blew up in the square, when the Umar came out and the Union Jack burned in the June air, the terror had become unwound and lightweight. Each of us were caught in the same swirl, all held together with our own small furies in this single, mad, monstrous and lunatic city. Theme that I felt really ran through the whole book was um, was survival, 
And I wondered whether, like, some of our authors have kind of said that theme is something that they kind of don't really think about until they've written their story. And I, I felt maybe with this, it, it seemed like maybe that was kind of like your intention to put that in, but I just wondered how yeah, you did about that. Interesting. I don't know what it's like. And I've heard, I've had conversations with other writers now where I've found how, how different writing could feel for, for other people. But for me, writing's always been quite a private thing, like very closed off. I didn't really know any writers or I didn't do an MFA or anything like that. Um, and I, what began as, I guess, like an intellectual pursuit in terms of like, trying to understand extremism and proximity to violence and like figuring out what that does to people and especially in a city like London, which is like an extreme city. Mm. Um, after a while, that's, that stuff like, what initially kind of spurred you on usually just kind of dies away or washes away um, and the themes is, are sort of washed through into the language and the characters you just follow the characters and the, vi the voices and usually your kind of subconscious knows what it's doing and usually the, the characters will bring through the, the themes that you were originally thinking about um, they'd say something or stuff something would happen and you're like oh yeah this does speak to the theme it's not something I consciously put in there and I think it's dangerous to always like trying to retrofit a theme you know I think I, usually it's kind of like a very intuitive sort of wander through and you just have to trust that you, the theme that you originally spurred you on it's what's pushing you anyway and usually that stuff comes through um, survival we, you know I think that's one of the things that I realized writing through it I'm not you I'm not usually looking for an answer to any of the questions I have um, it's usually just like a meander and survival just came up as okay no this is something that's obvious people who do go through trauma or, or, or uh, have a proximity to trauma or just all of us who are just sort of living through sort of extreme times um, usually it's what helps you through is uh, surviving with other people like friendships we, we just talked about it's one of the things in the book the people who usually get to the end of it or, or, or survive something like this is usually the ones that have love around them that makes sense I'm going to sneak in another question. Okay, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose Sorry. the writer wants to submit the book um, and characters are speaking in uh, vernacular or local dialect and the publisher got back to them saying, um, there are loads of <coughs> spelling errors here, you clearly don't know what you're doing. Um, yeah. And he said that they really put him off and he felt really uh, like frustrated that he didn't, his, they just didn't understand what he was trying to do and patronising him. Did, how did you find the process of I don't know. I, I d it's a weird one because again, like it, it was a private thing. I didn't really think beyond finishing the thing, right? So I didn't really think about other people reading it. It's all beside the point. It was like I don't, you know, care if this is. I also don't think I should accommodate anyone. I've read enough books about posh boys at posh schools, <laughs> and half of those references went over my head. So why would I think about that? And it's not, you know, it's a weird thing not writing towards being published but that's really how it felt you you'd write and it felt honest to me and also if you're writing something that you know is an honest experience fuck those guys like they wouldn't know why would they of course they would think oh this is doesn't feel right it's not speaking to their experience but eventually you you get people like my editor was amazing um and you also shouldn't be able to you, i don't think i think it'd be a mistake to, again to write something that second guesses a sensibility because you have no idea. My editor is not the type of person I thought would ever resonate with this, but she loves the book more than I do now. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, 
I, I think that all that stuff's a distraction. It, I don't know. Uh, it shouldn't put him off or her. It's just the, there'll be people within the gated house that would give it a shot. Anyone? Any other questions? I've got last one. Oh, yep. Yeah. glad you asked a question because it's one of the things that you were sort of worried about like talking about there's a reason why these guys are young men and there's a reason why it's 44 virgins that you get at the end of blowing yourself up like so there are certain things that have been threaded through um that's f actually finally being talked about like uh there's a certain pathology around extremism that links to so the lone wolf terrorist in 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 england so in paris for example there's a lot more in common with since school shooters for example in america right there is elliot roger for elliot roger for example who's a school shooter i think he, i can't remember what it, which school shooting it was but one of the ones a couple of years ago where his entire manifesto he did was about hatred of women and i think that there's 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 a perspective about uh Carolyn's character, who is the Northern Irish um, woman, where I wanted to make sure that that perspective is shown. Um, I can't give away too much about w what she does in terms of like the her own confrontation uh, growing up around the IRA and the, and the troubles in the 80s, but her decision sort of predicates the, the that conscious choice of like, this is a male problem, and it's a weird thing to say out loud, but you know there's a certain masculine violence that kind of runs through the idea of extremism especially if it's radicalization in terms of religious or, or any kind of thing um that was interesting to me and the, the the female perspective for me was just following that voice um and i i know and i knew what it was trying to do and why it was in the book so i kind of have to trust that the voice would sort of carry it if that makes sense was that a was was carolyn like a sort of did you have because you've obviously got five narrative voices, which is quite rare in itself to have that many, and then you've got her in there. Was that kind of uh, was she in there from the beginning, or was that kind of a decision to have a female voice? In yeah, there? Carolyn and Nelson sort of uh, turned up like yeah. through through <laughs> the through the writing of it. Uh, um, writing it did feel a bit like listening more than anything else. It was sort of like, all right, these voices are knocking around. Let me just properly listen and see what where they're going and at some point Carolyn was just insistent enough <laughs> for me to all right now you probably belong here I like those elements to it because like you know it's kind of stories that I don't necessarily know whether we know as much of it uh, you know you've heard about it and it's it sort of like we have memories of those kind of things but I felt like it was like nice to read about it and not nice following the right word but right. interesting to read about it to kind of get that perspective on it I found that very interesting as well as having the modern day kind of perspective yeah. on stuff yeah anyway any other questions? Go ask a question. <laughs> An effort not to win a book. <laughs> you made a mention about posh kids in posh schools. Yeah. So would it be safe to assume that you weren't one of those? Nah, probably not. Uh, no. 
So was there someone in your education that particularly inspired you? Because you're a very erudite young man. Um, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know. It's this, I think it's this private closed off thing. I used to, I read a lot when I was younger. And I, again, that was a very private affair. I would like raid charity shops in posh areas because rich people have really good taste in books. <laughs> so I would just get those books and steal them away in Tunisian and read it on my own. And these books would not be the books that my mates would read. They wouldn't read anyway. Um, but no, I didn't go to like posh school, private school, or anything like that. State school, pretty shitty school. Actually, a, the school that's in the book was more towards my experience. Uh, you know, I, I, I know I'm insanely bored around posh people. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's like a a, a, a thing. Like, you know, like you you'd you'd be you'd know you. you <laughs> Where you think you are in terms of like class hierarchy is usually when you're around other people who definitely aren't, didn't have your experience. Do you know what I mean? And in publishing, it's crazy middle class, and, yeah. and you know what I mean? So I know like, oh yeah, no, this isn't a usual thing for someone like me to be in this room. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, all the stories you hear are true. <laughs> it's just the truth. One thing, uh, one thing I, I loved about it as well, another thing, um, is uh, like your depiction of London and mm. like and it was how do you feel how did how did you approach writing about London as it is currently and how do you kind of feel about London's depiction in literature in general like how did you oh man yeah so one of the things I want to make sure uh, came through in the book <sighs> I've always been sort of let down and I know this for a fact I, I know I'm not the only person who thinks this who came up who grew up in like sort of a similar area um, you're sort of let down by the depiction of people with, with my experience in film or literature. It's usually, uh, it's not even that negative. Actually, there, w there has always been like a, a road narrative movie where it's like a drug story or a gun story. I've never seen a gun in my life. Like, it's just not a thing in London. But usually it's the depiction that comes out. But actually, the, the most prevalent depiction of uh, London youth, for example, is usually either a parody or, or a comedy. Um, Ali G, for example, stuff like that, like people just do nothing. It's usually like a comical clownish character that comes out of it, it's kind of talking with slang and stuff like that. And it's, it's a problem uh, if that's the only depiction that comes out of a culture, because usually the art, any art that comes out of that culture is easily dismissed. Um, and that bleeds through to, to society in general. I remember after that Grenfell happened, there was a, um, the survivors and, the, and, the, and the, the, the families that sort of uh, were affected would be in a you know very austere room talking, giving their uh, story and their and their um, uh, narrative to people, and it's a strange thing hearing the accent talk about something serious, and that's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a bit of a problem. So I think writing this, I was very conscious that no, this is not going to be that kind of story. This is going to be taken seriously. And it's one of the things that you choose when you approach publishers or, you know, I uh, want to make sure that that sensibility was there, that this isn't, like, just another book that's come out at the end. It's like, this is a book that's talking about this, but talking to two issues that everyone should be, I think, should be talking about.
thank you so much for coming on this warm sunny night when you could have been drinking pints in a beer garden so thank you very much and thank so you to right. all of our amazing authors you were all fantastic yeah, thank you so much, thank you very much.